welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning. My name is Jane Berg. I recently joined the staff of Awaken, and I have loved getting to know many of you, and I look forward to getting to know even more as time goes on. Right before the service started, I met two very interesting people. One has beautiful penmanship, and the other, well, she drew something that was very realistic, and it had something to do with being sick, but I won't go into detail. And she kind of won my heart, but I did have a flashback to a very painful time in my life, and that was when I was a bluebird. And our bluebird den mother, whatever she was, told us that we should color this bluebird, or a little girl on the front of our folder. She said, and color the face white, And I'm thinking, there are very few faces that are actually white. And I took the flesh-colored Crayola, and I did mine in flesh color. And Fern, won't say her last name, but Fern looked down and said, you didn't do like I told you. And I thought, but it's more realistic. And I was kicked out of Bluebirds. It was traumatic. <laughs> so, so I have a deep appreciation for any artist that does realistic artwork. I'd like to invite you to stand as I read the scripture for today, which is Hebrews 11, 8 through 12. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him to this same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from, excuse me, this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Father, we give your word back to you and ask it, ask that you would Teach us each individually according to what we need. 
from this passage. And thank you that your word is living and active in our lives, just as it was in Abraham's life. Amen. You may have a seat. In April, my sister Nan and I were given the wonderful opportunity to stay in a dear friend's condo on the beach in Florida. It was a glorious week. We ate a lot of seafood. We walked on the beach in the morning. I liked sitting in this yellow, comfortable chair, looking out on the Gulf for hours. Well, sadly, the end of the week came. And Nan and I went to the desk that this friend had told us about, where there were sheets of instructions of what to do before you leave. And we were so grateful to this wonderful friend for the gift that we started carefully doing them, checking them off, high-fiving, and then going to the next. And, and sometimes we even did more than what was asked of us. If you love someone, you want to know what pleases them. If I aim to love God, then I want to know what pleases God. And the writer of Hebrews 11 did not leave us guessing. In Hebrews 11, 1 through 2 and 6 through 7, he answers that question. He says, the Lord had said to Abram, whoops, that was a sneak peek at what's to come. (laughs) Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So, if it's faith that pleases God, then I want to know exactly what faith is. Now, before I go on to talk about what faith is, I want to say a word about the word please. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Pleasing God does not have, um, it, it is not sacrifice. Micah has taught us very clearly from the word that Jesus paid the sacrifice that was required. And that's done. There are no more sacrifices needed. So when we talk about faith-pleasing God, what we're talking about is something that will make him happy and deepen our love relationship with him. So what is this all-important faith? The writer answers that in part by introducing us to a long line of, I love this word, ancients 
who were known for their faith. I just wonder how old I need to be before I can be called an ancient. Not because I want to. I rather dread that. But today we're going to look at one ancient and his faith. His name is Abraham. I want you to picture in your mind what image comes forward when I say the word Abraham. Got it? When I did this myself, what immediately came into my mind was a very tall, very strong man with flowing robes, flowing gray hair, his hand out like this with a staff, striding purple, purple, (laughs) you know. And, And I thought, huh, where did that come from? Now, I'm not going to have you tell me what your image is, but kind of keep that tucked in the back of your mind because I wonder if the images we have of Abraham are accurate. And to begin to answer that question, I would like to read again a portion of our scripture for today. Hebrews 11 11. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so, this is what you have to listen to. And so, from this one man, and he as good as dead came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. I spent a year recently in a clinical pastoral residency at Methodist Hospital, and I saw a number of people who were as good as dead. And they might have hung on for quite a while, But none flourished as Abraham was promised he would. So this, to say the least, was an impossible situation that God orchestrated. Doesn't seem like God is put off by the impossible. In Abraham's life, in Sarah's, in mine, in yours, impossible is not daunting to him. I read this week, and perhaps you did as well, a rather shocking story that is very true. A grandmother, like some here, um, we have a grand cat, so I don't know if that qualifies me, but, but I am that age. There was a woman who was a mother and a grandmother who was arrested convicted and thrown in prison for 20 to 30 years for a murder she did not commit. She was sitting at a fast food place with her daughter and her grandchild, and police came in, unbelievable, 
and put handcuffs around her wrists and took her away. And she did not go back home for 20 to 30 years. Well, she was asked in this magazine, so what helped you? And she said, my faith. I always believed that God was going to surface the truth. And I turned to him again and again and again and again. Well, after 20-some years, uh, there was an attorney, a woman, who, I don't know how she got a hold of this woman's case, but she examined it and she said, there's something wrong here. And to make a long story short, they discovered that the informant who was the biggest piece of evidence to convict her was actually a serial liar, and somehow that did not come up in the trial. And so this woman was acquitted, and she was released. And I think it's so interesting as... um, As I read her story, I thought, you know, there are a lot of people that are innocent and they are convicted and never come out. It was fortunate that this woman and her faith resulted in what it did. I hadn't thought about saying this, but this beautiful illustration just popped into my mind. Many years ago, when my dad was diagnosed with cancer and we didn't know if it was spread throughout his body, he came to the University of Minnesota for tests. And when he was there, we happened to go hear a lecturer, Francis Schaefer, and his wife, Edith, was there with him. And at the back, after Francis spoke, I was talking to Edith and she said, Francis has had his most fruitful ministry since he has been diagnosed with cancer. And she had just written a book on affliction. And our family was wondering, what if, you know, these are last days for dad? What if it's just contained? Well, that's what we want. But honestly, we weren't sure how to pray. And I bought Edith's book, Affliction, and I started reading it that night, and I came across this illustration that has been helpful to me, was helpful to our family then, and still is. Edith said, talking about God's power in our lives, she said, I think one day... There'll be a trophy case A and a trophy case B. And trophy case A will have in it, it will be filled with trophies given to people who had faith, believed God, and his response was that his power was demonstrated by changing what the person is going through. And she said, but I also think that there's going to be another trophy case in heaven. And this is one that is equally as full of trophies as the first one. And yet, 
these trophies are given to the saints, you, who trusted God in the middle of a very difficult situation and didn't see it resolved. And yet, God's power was demonstrated by giving them the faith to continue on. Both are a demonstration of God's power. And Abraham was in that boat. He did not see the promise that was made to him. But he lived continually as if that would happen, and it will. Okay, now that I'm a little confused. Oh, now I know where I'm at. Not only did Abraham experience God's response to um, his promise that, that he would have Isaac, even though Sarah was quite old, you know, I can't help but think. We make a big deal about Abraham being old. Well, he didn't give birth. <laughs> I think Sarah deserves a lot of credit. Not only did Abraham not start from a place of strength, but his path to the goal was not always straight. And I think we, I think it needs to be. I think, well, duh, you're given this promise, just walk right toward it. But Abraham didn't, and I don't. What I'd like to do is look at a few of Abram, as he was called back then. Abram, in Genesis 12, this was one of his wanderings, he was told to leave his people and his father's house and his country. And so he said, okay, I'll do it. He started out. But he invited Lot, his brother, to go with him just after God told him very clearly, leave your house, your family, your father's house, and go to the land that I will provide for you. And he turns around and he said, Lot, do you want to come along? And Lot did, and Abraham regretted it probably every day of his journey because he was problematic. Lot was. And then in Genesis 22, we read about how Abraham um, was afraid. And he was afraid that first Pharaoh and then another king would kill him so they could get his wife Sarah, who was so beautiful. And so he lied. He told the pharaoh, and then he told another king, that she was his sister, so that his neck would be saved. Once again, never mind poor Sarah and what he put her through. But it's the, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, first of all, Abraham was disobedient. Have you ever been disobedient? And then he was deceptive. Have you ever been deceptive? And then finally, perhaps the saddest of all is that Abraham and Sarah became impatient 
They were wondering when were they going to have an heir that was critical to the promise. And finally, they thought, well, we're going to do something about this ourselves. And so Sarah gave Hagar, her maid servant, to Abraham. They slept together and had a son, Ishmael. Well, you know the rest of the story, probably, and that is that Sarah did give birth to Isaac, their heir. And on the day that they threw a party for Isaac, the next morning, Abraham got up and sent out into the desert Hagar and their son Ishmael. So he was disobedient, deceptive, and impatient. Have you ever been impatient? What he did after each of these was he turned his face back to God. He turned his face back to God. And that is what faith is. Turning our face back to God. Well, if I were to answer the questions that I just asked you, have I ever been disobedient? Have I ever been deceptive? <clears throat> have I ever been impatient? Well, I have a long list of answers to each one of those. I'll just let you in on a couple of them. I got married when I was 46 and became an immediate mother to two children, Matt, who was eight, and Sarah, who was 11 at the time. And my life was already very, very full. But I wanted no one else to raise these children but me. So I was doing my dean thing at the seminary. I was in graduate school. And I was a new pastor's wife. I was a new wife. And I was a new mother. And I didn't have much time to read parenting books. But that was OK, because my kids taught me how to parent. An example, when we were engaged, I used to drive up 169 to where Ken and the kids lived, and I would help him put the kids to bed. One day, I walked in the house, and here was Matt sitting in the middle of the living room floor, sobbing. And I, I had no idea what had happened, and I kept trying to coax him out from under this blanket. And I would say, Matt, why don't you come out and tell me what's wrong? Matt, please, please tell me what's wrong. And finally, this little hand pulls up the side of the blanket, looks at me and says, you're supposed to give me choices. The blanket <laughs> went back down again. So I had my own tutors. I... Um, I think I have wandered off the path the most frequently in parenting, or maybe I was just aware of it more. But there are some things that I thought, after I did them, I thought, oh God, surely you've had it with me now. And one of those, one of the most painful, was also poor Matt. <clears throat> The summer after we were engaged, or the fall after, 
actually the fall after we got married, I took Matt and Sarah with my family who were in town to an apple orchard. And it was quite a fun day for everybody but me because this was the first time my parenting skills were on display to my family who lived out of town. And I was nervous all day. What are they going to think? What do I do now? Oh, Sarah's misbehaving. I don't know how I should respond to this. And so it was quite, quite stressful for me. Still no excuse. But we got home. Ken was at the church writing his sermon. And, and I, I don't know where Sarah was at that point, but Matt and I sat down at the kitchen table to eat some soup chicken noodle soup. And I do not know what came over me. It was not deserved by Matt. But I looked at him and I said, that's it. I am not eating with you. And I picked up the soup bowl, which was actually a pasta bowl, so it was not very deep. And having a little too much force, I took this bowl and I swung around to put it in the kitchen sink and the noodles slipped out and went splat on the wall. And I thought, oh my gosh, what have I done? I turned immediately to Matt and I said, Matt, you need to understand you did not deserve that. It is not your fault. It is mine. And Later, I came out to the kitchen, and here Sarah was up on the counter cleaning the wall, taking the noodles off. But I said to Matt, I think I'm the one that needs a timeout right now. So I went into the bedroom, and a little while later, Ken came home, and I heard Ken and Matt talking in the hallway, and I heard Matt say, Dad? don't you think that Jane is a nice person? (laughs) I think my kids have taught me a lot about grace. And there are many other times that I've wandered off the path. and, um, And I had to come to grips with the fact that, yeah, I'm gonna do this but God is not going to reject me. What's important is that I turn my face back toward him. I would like to introduce you to another ancient. This man is my father, Sam Isles, feed salesman, Groton, South Dakota. In the last 20 years of his life, he experienced excruciating pain from his rheumatoid arthritis. It seemed like he was always having this toe or that toe or this part of his foot chopped off because it was too painful. Despite this, whenever we were back in South Dakota and we were sitting at the kitchen table for dinner or breakfast or lunch, and dad would pray, he would weep. Every time he would thank God for the food, he would weep. 
Ken has been witness to this fact. It still amazes me. He did that when I was little, and he does, well, he died a couple of years ago. He was doing it still back then. He turned his face toward God, even in the midst of great pain. He would spend time at the nursing home to recover from the surgeries he had. And I always expected him, <clears throat> excuse me, to complain about having to be in the nursing home. But this is what we would hear from him. We would hear him say, okay, you know the blind guy that sits across from me every night at the dinner table? I got him to talk. He loves baseball. So we talk about the twins now. Even in difficult circumstances that most people don't want to be in, my dad would turn his face toward God with thanksgiving. And then one day, my mom and I were having coffee at Kessler's in Aberdeen, South Dakota, when I noticed an older man about my dad's age walk in, and he was trying to make his way to the table, but his hand was shaking because of Parkinson's. And I jumped up, I recognized him immediately, and I said, Mr. Swisher, let me carry that for you. And so I took his cup of coffee, sat it in front of him, and I said, now, I don't really expect you to remember me, but I graduated with your twins, Bob and Bill. And he goes, oh, yeah, Jane Isles. And then he immediately started talking to me about my father. And he said, sure wish your dad would come back to Kiwanis again. He said, I know he probably doesn't come because he physically can't help with things. But that's not why we want him to come. We want him to come for who he is. That was another way of his saying, he's a man who turns his face toward God. Well, the last day, two days before my father died, I was with him in the hospital in Aberdeen, South Dakota, and I was spending the day with him, and most of the day, his body was racked with pain, and his meds weren't quite right, he was hallucinating some, and it was a pretty awful day. And then there was this season of quiet that he experienced. And in that season of quiet and lucidity, he looked at me and he said, could you see if we can get the National Geographic on TV? And I thought, that's my father, the ancient his last day appreciating God's creation and delighting in it and turning his face toward God. And he never saw the promise that he counted on, which was the promise in Revelation that someday there will be no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain. But that day will come for all of us, just as it was promised. Now, I'd like to invite the band 
John Mark and the band to come up again. And I'd like to have a few minutes of silence. And in this silence, I would like you to consider two questions. The first is, is there a place in your life that you think it's impossible for any change? What would it look like if you were to turn your face toward God in that situation? And then, is there a place in your life where you've wandered away so often that you think, oh, surely God is tired of me and doesn't want me to come back? What would it look like if in that area you turned your face toward God again? I'll give you a couple of minutes and then John Mark and the band will lead us in Let Our Faith Be Not Alone. Friends, Hebrews 11 is this long list of unlikely characters the most unlikely of suspects to play a role in God's story. And yet the invitation comes to each of them. Turn your face back to me. Follow. Be involved. So wherever you've come from this morning, whatever you carried in these doors, uh, the good news of the gospel is that it's for you. Today. Whatever that looks like. Whatever it looks like to turn your face back towards God. So be encouraged. Know that you're included that the offer is for you, and that God is up to something in the world and wants you involved. So, grace and peace. Love you. Stick around as long as you like. Discover Awaken at noon. Free pizza if you don't have lunch. See you later. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community. Or on Twitter, Awaken Community. See you next time.